0: This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author and psychologist Shafali Sabari explores the way we unconsciously pass on psychological pain to our children. He's joined in conversation by Dean of Alumni, Richard Boogs. This talk was recorded on May 5th, 2017, in front of a live audience in San Francisco.
1: much more to me on so many levels than the ordinary, because I have two of my professors here who first took me under their wing when I was 21 years old, Renee and George, and it's so moving for me to be back here, you know, I left India when I was 21, 22, and now I'm 44, Um, but it's just perfect synchrony, you know, 22 years later, and I get to show them what they implanted in me. So I am deeply honored that they are here today. CIIS made me and gave me the gumption and the daring to do what I do today. When I left India at 21, just on the energetic pull of this catalog that was thrown on my lap, And I opened it to the page that said drama therapy. And since I had taught two-bit theater to some children, I thought, oh, I can qualify. I did some drama. And my father looked at me in aghast and said, I'm not paying $20,000, $40,000 for you to do drama therapy. Like, what is drama therapy? It sounds like trauma therapy. To He was like, it sounds like very traumatic. He's like, it's traumatic for me to spend all this money. I've never heard of this degree. Um, and I was like, dad, this is me. You know, it's got the dramatic part of me and the theatrical and then the healer. And he was like, I'll send you for one year and that's all I can afford and you make it or come back. And I was like, anything, right? You just, you take, listen to me, you you just take that ticket and run, okay? Doesn't matter. And I did. And after a year, he literally reneged. He was like, okay, Promise fulfilled, come back. And I was like, no, I'm in the middle of my program. And I went to Renee and I said, my father's done. He's like finished with his promise. He thinks like this is, you know, that was enough exposure for for an Indian girl, now come back. (laughs) How much exposure do you want? How American do you wanna be? And I remember going back to him and this was a powerful moment in my understanding the parental role because when I went back to him in India and I had to express to him that no, I don't think I'm a typical Indian girl and I really don't think I can come back and now get married and just like live a life down the street. I need you to understand that I have another vision for myself. And as I stood in his room quivering Because my fate depended on his answer and subliminally realizing that no one should have so much control over another human's destiny. But there I was, a good Indian girl, waiting for her father to release her. He then turned around to me and said, I see your growth. And I know that if I now keep you behind, I would not be doing my sacred duty to you to now release you. And he metaphorically gave me my keys to my own freedom. But had he not, as is the fate of many, then what? And I remember that and it underpins the work I do today because in no way, shape, or form should a parent, albeit and although my father did have this power, should ever have so much power over the sovereign spirit of another being Least of all, our children. When I then proceeded and you know began following the way of CIIS, which, if any of you know this institution, you realize quickly that if you don't meditate, you are the outcast. So, and I was like, I just left India. And I'm not. What is this? This is like India all over again. But I went back into meditation. And it opened up, you know, the world of the inner landscape like nothing else can. And CIS, this school, this unique jewel, allows someone to live in the world of the material and live in the world of form, but then give you this whole other dimension of formlessness that is the most valuable to your potential to your growth. So this is what this institution does. And it's this jewel. This is not a marketing plea for CIS. They're not paying me. But really, I I can't tell you what a jewel. Because then I went on and I did my PhD at mainstream institutions that could never give what this institution gives, which is the exploration of the inner self beyond and above your blueprint in the outside world, your footprint in the outer world, and I take this now into every encounter with every parent. When I began practicing psychology, I could only do it the CIS way, which really is who I am. It's East meets West. So I began teaching meditation in my practice and got resistance and began teaching the, about the ego and the force of the false self and how we project that false self in our intimate relationships, you know, regular therapy stuff, but began to see that in the parent-child dynamic, this projection takes on like some steroid ninja-level proportion. But I wasn't a parent myself, so I didn't dare to call the parent out on their ego, but I would watch and see the parental ego being unleashed on child after child after child. And I just thought it was, you know, one parent. And I was like, when I become a parent, I'm going to not be like that. And, I, and then if I am not like that, it was just this one parent or that, that other parent. But then, when I became a parent, And had done psychology, no less, for like a decade and been meditating big hips. I mean, I thought I would be exempt from the parental ego. So when I began to watch when my child was in the belly, already having fantasies and visions that my child... Instead of watching Minnie and Mickey and Donald, my child would say, no, mom, let's complete this 300-piece puzzle now. Mom, now. Don't sleep. Let's let's one more piece. Or the battles I would have with my teenager wouldn't be about, you know, uh, get off your iPad or whatever we had in those days, the TV, right? So backward back then. Um, it would be about, you got to come home. You can't volunteer so many hours. you got to come home. No, you can't give of yourself. You have to think of yourself first. That's, those were the conversations I would have with my teenager, who incidentally, I'm taking to Guatemala this summer, and she already outed me before you all came into this room and told somebody, yeah, my mom is forcing me to go to Guatemala. <laughs> but I had the vision. So. As the child grew in the belly, and you remember your visions, you know, we are some other level of insanity, the, per- the parent. We don't just want a child. We want a sliver of Julia Roberts, a sliver, we're not asking for too much, some talent, um, a bit of Mother Teresa, of course, to make up for all the days we've never volunteered or touched anyone with leprosy. Of course, a bit of uh, Einstein without the crazy hair and the speech delay. We pick and choose, you know, and we're making this, this, this perfect sculpt, this sculpting, this beautiful painting until the child comes, right? And even the first year, we are still, you know, because the child can't speak or talk, so we're still in the lull that the fantasy is going to come true. So what if it looks like the mother-in-law? It's okay. You bargain with reality, right? You, like, play with the devil. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay, I've given the I've let go. <laughs> and then, of course, we call it the terrible twos. Because what's terrible about it is only that your fantasy is shattering before your eyes. <laughs> but you're holding on because we are so persistent, especially with our first children. No wonder they are the way they are. Right? The firstborn isn't the firstborn because they want to be that prototypical firstborn, because we have Driven them crazy with all our insanity and anxiety. The perfectionistic first child. Didn't just become the perfectionistic first child. Or the first child is anxious. No, because the projection was the deadliest. But we hold on and we keep going. And I did too, right? I didn't know who I was in this form till my daughter was three. I went to some other dimension. I became that parent that I was judging in therapy because this is just the nature of parenting. Right? You get seduced into the, the mainstream psyche, which says that your children are yours, so you believe they're yours. Finally, someone is yours. They have your name, you get to name them. <gasps> Do you remember the hours you spent the insanity to give your child that name? I mean, there itself, the grandeur of the ego. Is roaring loud, but we're all buying the books about the unusual name. And I don't want this name. I'll name my daughter with. So I name my daughter Maya, which of course, you know, was uh, met with so much resistance from my country. Maya is like Jane, or sorry, Janes, and Mike. You're sorry, Mikes. But like Maya, like I was told by my mother, how can you call her Maya? Sorry, Maya. But I was like, Maya will be called Emmy. I now that's a, that's a switch up, right? That's creative. But the reason I called her Maya, really, because Maya is the word for illusion. And I knew even back then, even though I wasn't paying attention, that I was under the illusion of having this child as if it was for the child. I was so selfless. As if I was going to raise her to follow her spirit. I was pretending like I would have the child for those reasons. But then when the child comes, you forget. Because there is this thing called the parental... Kool-Aid, I call it, and we're all drinking it. It's this mainstream way of raising children, and all of us are seduced by it. And so was I, till the age of three, when every fantasy of mine began crumbling, and I'm like, this is not happening. Not even a bit of meditation is coming organically from this child. Like, she's not going to be the next female Dalai Lama. It's not happening. Like, either let it go, or you're going to drive this child crazy. And then I began to see the beauty of the child before me. And understand that we cannot raise the children of our fantasies anymore. We must raise the children who have come to us for the perfect reason that they have, as they are. And really, not only to accept them as they are, but that they've really come to us to show us the delirium, the insanity of this ego. And they're here to mirror to us all that we haven't seen about our own childhood. When I began noticing how I would like bang at, my babysitter's bathroom, in, when she used to go to the bathroom, how dare, if she spent like more than two minutes in the bathroom, I'm like, you got to come out. I can't handle this child on my own. Like, What are you doing in the bathroom? Or if she called off a day off, do you, do you know how you mothers act when the babysitter calls off? It's like World War III, Like, Do not leave me with this child because we begin to see how unraveled we are every time our child throws a fit because we haven't yet grown up. And when I began to see that, then I began to understand, oh, that ego I've been studying about in, in meditation is right here. But we didn't realize that we need to check this ego. Which parenting books ask us to check our ego? For the most sacred job in the world, there is no license. There is no exam. Just, just, I want to have. If I asked you right now, why did you have a child? You're like, just, I want it. I want it. It's just this one more thing on the list, and the men don't even say, I want it. They're like, I it just happened. <laughs> At least the women are on a mission. And the mission is intense, these women. Well, my biological clock was ticking, and I, I had to, I wanted to, it was on the list. And then the more conscious women are like, I had so much love to give. Or I wanted to raise a conscious child right? And they think they're getting like an AM, like you're failing right now because it's all about you. So the reason we have children is all about our need, our expectations, our fantasies. And this is a hard call. This is a hard thing to see in the mirror. But if we don't see it in the mirror, then we will raise children to just be mutated versions of ourselves. And we saw what happened with us and our parents using us for the same reason. So do we want the legacy of being used for another person's fulfillment to continue, or is it time to say, no, I want to do it the conscious way. Since I already messed up and had the child the unconscious way, now I want to correct and do it the conscious way. And the conscious way is the difficult way, because there is no ego stroking and Facebook posting in the conscious way, where you truly allow your child to emerge as and when and how they wish. Now, not without guidance and not without presence. In fact, more presence. So when I speak like this to allow the child's spirit to unfold, of course, the pushback I get, oh, so you just mean let my kid have drugs whenever they want to have drugs and let my kid go to sleep with whoever they want. You know how parents are. Oh, so you mean? I go, no, I don't mean that. I actually mean greater presence because you're truly being attuned to the child before you and you're not paying allegiance and homage to your fantasy because that's our raising of children, really just being homage to your own fantasy. That's what most of us are doing. We're not truly listening to the beat of our children. We don't dare. Why don't we dare? Because if we dare to listen to the beat of our children, our children may just be at home in the evenings and not at five activities. And so then we're going to be behind the curve. Who dares? Not us. You're like, okay, the next generation can follow your work, Dr. Shafali. Like, this generation, too much pressure. We'll fall behind the curve. What curve? The curve of fear. Really, we're just chasing fear. So unless we dare, and I can barely dare on most days, so I know how hard it is. But if we can dare to understand our children are not ours, as Khalil Gibran said, they're really not yours. In fact, they only are here to be a mirror to how you have yet to grow. So if you look in the mirror, then you are endlessly learning and then they have endlessly fulfilled that potential you keep talking about. They have done their job simply by you elevating to your next evolution. That's the job of a conscious parent. And if you do that, you liberate yourself and you keep your children liberated because they came liberated and they're just asking you to keep them unshackled. So that's the call of the conscious parent. I now invite Richard to, to engage in a, in a deep conversation with me.
2: What a lucky chap I am, huh? <laughs> to get to sit up here with you and talk about parenting. Full disclosure, I don't have any kids.
1: So then you gotta leave. Leave! <laughs>
2: but this book, I recommend to all the parents in my clinical practice. When we start talking about kids, and they start going into their routine, and my daughter's already behind, she's four starting ballet, and they told her she's already behind, and, and I, think to, I think to myself, oh my goodness, how did this happen? And then I think about you, and this beginning of starting a revolution in parenting. So thank you for your work, and thank you for being here tonight.
1: Yeah, I'm excited.
2: So, I want to ask you a couple things. I happened to pass by a toy store, and it had a a signboard out front, and it said, A child's work is to play. And it was uh, Maria Montessori. So can you say a little bit, do you know much about the Montessori process, and can you say very much about how your book kind of mirrors some of that?
1: Well, I'll I'll not only speak to that, but just in general. it's What Maria is saying in that is that a child is unbounded joy. And their natural way of being, being, is to explore the world through their playfulness and through their spontaneity. So to put anything on that is coming from the external. It's not organic to the child. But similarly, a preteen's way is a certain way which begins to involve a breaking away from the fold, a little bit of sass and spite and talking back, and that's their way. Or a teenager's way is to break free and to rebel and to find autonomy or to be confused about their identity, and now that's their way. So what she inspires us to remember is that there's a way. And like the Tao says, there's the the way of the way. And if you align yourself as a parent with your unique child's particular way, And you flow with it and always look for the way of the least resistance. doesn't mean you are conflict-averse. It just means you're always listening to what is the most organic way that is your child's expression that comes without you pushing, right? Because parents always say, well, then how do we push our children and how do we motivate our children? You don't. Because if you believe that the spirit of our humanity is wild and desiring nothing but expression... And if you believe that, then your children will manifest. So what is there to push? You know when you're pushed into a diet or pushed into compliance, you have resistance to push back. So you don't ever push your child. And there's only two things a child can do in return now when you push. Because they're absorbent and they're trusting, you know, especially young children. So they begin to either comply, so they fold in, and they comply, but they're really just ingesting you, they're not finding them, or they rebel, but again, they're just reacting to you, but they're not finding themselves. So you're losing valuable years, the first pivotal 10 years, really, from which we are all recovering, um, to, to find themselves. That's the task of consciousness in childhood. How do you allow your child to pivot themselves inward and know their voice, which should be equal to or even louder than your voice? Of course we don't do that because that takes complete abdication of our control, complete attuning, who has time for time, like wait, like really I have to wait for my child to unfold, that takes some patience. But by two, we're already superimposing. We're already deciding. So then you've lost the child undergoing the discovery process. Yeah, you've gained, you're ahead of the curve. Yeah, they know an instrument, they know two languages. Beautiful. But you know now in our midlife and post midlife crisis that the instrument is not helping out. Is it making you happier? It's not helping. So, what if you know how to play the guitar and the piano? Like, really, is it helping in your serenity? Is it helping in your being your most free and authentic? So what if we changed the main task of parenting to the inner exploration of the authentic voice? What if that was our primary goal in school and at home? That's what you are graded for, compassion, self-compassion, other compassion, relatedness, inner authenticity, freedom of voice. We would all, the pharmaceutical industry would be, would be defunct. And we would not be in the political crisis that we are today. So, one more thing. Yeah, I told Richard.
2: I told her I'm just an accessory here. I mean, and I don't mind. It's true. <laughs>
1: I do know how to be interrelated. Okay, I should try. I'm gonna show you. Because I told him, Don't give me a mic. Do you understand? I don't know how to stop. Like you I'm like, will you wave out to me after ten minutes? Because I only know how to go for an hour. You just put this in front of me and I can go for an hour. That's just some condition. Okay, so I'm done. I was gonna go into a political crisis rant, but I think You're in solved. Berkeley. Go ahead. No, I think we should I think we should right. come we should come back. It was a good moment of, of catching myself. No, ask some more questions. Okay.
2: So parents know they're pushing their kids. I mean, they really get it. They can feel it. They can feel the kids being over overscheduled and too structured, and the kids are unhappy, and they, they don't want to do these activities. But how do you help parents find the confidence to forge their own path and not be so worried about their children being left behind and being at some disadvantage for the rest of their lives?
1: Yeah. We know, we know that we're pushing our kids. We see them stressed. We see them anxious. But there's a beautiful cognitive dissonance process happening. We see, but we're like, no, it's for their own good. Mm. So we flip it to, but they're going to find happiness at the end of this a long, arduous road filled with medication and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and sleepless nights. But at the end of it, they're going to be happier and they're going to be more successful. We are, br- we are brainwashing ourselves because if we didn't brainwash, there's no excuse for how insane we are. We are insane. I don't know how insane you are in Berkeley, but where I come from in New York City, insane, crazy, you know? Like when, so crazy, like my child, how old is he? Oh, two and a half. Okay, my child just spent the whole afternoon painting at the MoMA. I'm like, okay. Uh, uh, how much do you spend for that art program? $80,000. The kid knows he's in the MoMA. Yeah, but he feels it. He feels, he absorbs. <laughs> tell me that's not crazy. But these are loving parents, dedicated, smart, obviously wealthy, successful parents. So what are we doing? We're doing some weird cognitive shifting that allows us to keep doing it. And we do it because I think we haven't arrived at true happiness. We have no idea what that is. And all the things we did did not work. But again, there's a cognitive dissonance, so we say, oh, we didn't do it well enough. So now we're just gonna do it well enough and make this the project to get to the utopic, ubiquitous happiness So really, the the quest is earnest. It starts from good intention, but it's all misguided, right? And the, the truth is because we don't realize what that happiness is. If we knew, and it can only be cultivated through wisdom, that happiness has nothing to do with anything on the outside, and it's truly just your relationship with yourself and your divinity, your oneness connection to all, then all the madness would stop. So because we don't have that, we are rabid, and we really believe this will take them to that. But we, but we don't know, but we just this is what we've been conditioned to. So that's why schools like CIS and wisdom teachings are the only way to turn the tide.
2: So can we talk for a minute about the importance of parents being touched with their own emotions because I happened to witness this child that the parents were convinced this kid—I think it must have been four or five—had to have swimming lessons, and the kid just did not want to go in that pool. And the dad said, "You'll thank me one day." As they see, pu- as yeah, pushing that kid, right. not literally pushed right. the kid in, a little shove. But you know the the thing about the, that moment of betrayal, of not being in tune with what that child needed and wanted. Yeah. And I thought, what is, is that? When the parent dad? is so
1: afraid, you know, when you're so afraid that. If the child doesn't do X, it truly means a huge handicap, right? That's why we do all this. Because we really believe without this, there will be homelessness, right? That's where we go. After homelessness, it's prison, like drug dealing, drugs. (laughs) That's where I go. And then I begin to think, okay, what's so bad about jail? Like, then I deconstruct that. Because you have to deconstruct these fears because we go there. So then I begin to say, okay, what is so bad about homelessness? Why am I... So against homelessness, if that's my fear, if that's my motivator, I got to deconstruct it. But we parents are not deconstructing anything. But if you truly sit in your awareness and ask yourself, what is my fear right now? That my child has to pick up that backpack right now. You know how we get about the backpack? Pick it up right now. (laughs) We're crazy. So forget, I mean, the backpack is one thing. Swimming lessons truly means drowning. So now we're on some other level of fear. So fear, fear, fear is what is subduing us. It's taken us over. We become Martians to ourselves. And in that moment, we cannot attune to the child. And that's why the child does feel betrayed, and then another betrayal, and it's happening and over and over at this subconscious level. And then by the age of 12, when your kid is in the hoodie, under the, the earphones, in the seat, you're like, what happened to my sweet angel? How did this happen? <laughs> it happened because the child is done. Done with the betrayal. Done with the misattunement. And when they can finally have the power to wear that hoodie and they're bigger than you, they're like, yeah, what are you going to do now, mom? You're like, take you to Dr. Shafari now. <laughs> then you're, Then that's your sign that you've pushed too much. You've pushed so much that they have to create barrier after barrier to ward off your unconscious. And even then, we don't wake up. So how do we, in the moment, attune with our children? Well, we have to work on our fears. And we don't want to see that we're coming from fear. We want to pretend like we're coming from goodness. We're doing it for your good. So unless we deconstruct that it's all our fear coming because we never grew up into our oneness, into our divinity, then this is the, this is the parenting that we do. This is it. Fear-based. And
2: I wonder if there's some perhaps uh, intergenerational transmission of fear. That guy was making his kid get in sure. the pool. I thought, well, I wonder what happened with he and his dad. Sure. Or his dad and his grandpa. Sure. And I thought, well, how do you interrupt it? And I think that's what you're trying to do is interrupt right. some of that yes. family
1: pattern. Yes but then you have to put stock in that, right? So if you as a person don't, didn't put stock in your own pain, you're so disconnected from your own pain that you've, you've calibrated it that it was for your good, so great is your level of denial, then you're gonna put no stock in somebody else's tears, which is why we have the world we have today, because everyone is in denial that they were ever in pain. The pain is so painful, we cannot confront it. So the shadow is becoming bigger and bigger, which is why we are again why we are, where we are. And this will continue until enough of us wake up or one day that father gets in touch with his pain because one day denial does catch up. And when the client comes into my office and I can see that denial has caught up inside you, I'm terrible, big glee. Big glee because now I know you're broken. You know, but of course, the poor client is broken. How can I be so happy? But I'm like, finally, because what's broken is the ego, is the false self. That is something to celebrate about, right? Ego side. And um, but of course, I'm very empathic when, you know, I'm, I, but, it, you but this are. is the only way when the ego breaks, then you are ready to open your heart.
2: You know, what struck me in the book is one of the clients who came to see you, she was very concerned about her son, who was African-American. And she had really built up a story about how she had to be hard on him and how important it was because it was going to be so much more difficult for him going forward. And there was some way in which you really attuned with her. I mean, you got her to talk about her fears. You didn't try to talk her out of it or make her bad. So this is a quality you have, I think, around making people not feel defensive.
1: Right, because the very reason we are in the position we are is because we were never heard, correct? So our fears were never validated. So now it's so pivotally important to heal that and to empathize that all of us are coming from fear, really. There's no bravado. And only when you're willing to be bare to that and vulnerable to the fact that we're all really the same. Every parent, it is the, it is the common denominator, right? Our fear. All of us are besieged, we know what that fear is. It's the same fear. There's no better you or better me. When it comes to our children, we're all on our knees. So when you can empathize with that and then heal that in the parent, you're allowing for the parent to release some of the fears that they've been projecting on their children, right? And when it comes to things like African-Americanism or any minority issue where fear has been legitimate, like really, you have to be in some fear, How do you then break it? So you not only have the personal fear, now you have the cultural archetypal fear, right? Which on some level is legit. So how do you deconstruct that and show the person, yes, the fear is legitimate, but by you engaging in the fear, you're perpetuating it on some level. You're now participating in it. It's delicate, but we have to, we cannot add to the fear in the world, no matter how legitimate, right? So we have to work on finding some sacred connection to our divinity. Otherwise, we will add to the fear that's the very reason we're an ego in the first place.
2: And I just wonder, too, about how, how it is that you can help parents check their judgment. Because it seems like this uh, balance, this uh, delicate the tension between judgment and empathy is an important part of this.
1: Right. So we, we are so good at faking empathy, right? We're like, oh, you're so tired come, come, get up, get up. You can do it, right? In in our heads, we're like, get up now, right? But we know we have to be empathic. So we are mostly living in judgment. We enter a room. Our child is before us. My child has called me out on it. She's told me, is the shower, me having a shower, more important than you saying I love you? I'm like, yes, it is. But we forget that a child yearns for connection. And until connection is given and the child is seen, really there can be no doing until the being is, sold, is, is soldered. Okay. The word soldered, for example, I never knew there was a word soldered because in India we say soldered. But you see how expertly I said soldered? I, the first time I used it correctly. Because my daughter's like, what is solder?" I'm like, soldered. Be a soldier and solder on. She's like, no, mom, it's solder. I'm like, solder like fodder? Okay, I digress. So (laughs) until you solder this connection, you can't move on. So to train parents to enter a room and to see what is, not what isn't, to see the as-is, not what it should be; to be in the reality, not in your fantasy; to be in connection, not in control; to be in being before doing. This is the training. This is the how the tide is going to shift, moment after moment. But we are always first in ego, in control, in the in the ideal, in the pristine, in the fantasy, and then we come to the isness of it. But this is why raising children is. Wisdom extraordinary, right? There's no better guru of the of the acceptance of the is-ness than having a child. Come back to the isness. What is what is, but what is, not what isn't. That your child is breathing, that your child is connected, that your child is here. Then the homework, then the grades. But conditioning from culture takes us the wrong way. And that conditioning has a, a postscript or the, the fi- fine print, fear. Follow that, fear. It's just the way of the conditioned mainstream. Fear is its bedfellow. You have no choice. If you follow mainstream, you are living sleeping with fear. So you have to find another way and you have to train yourself to let go of mainstream. That is the only way to be sane and conscious.
2: It seems at some point there's, there's such a struggle between kids and their parents around technology whether it's the cell phone or the iPad or lots of other things that I don't even know what it is. Uh, how do you help parents think about the role of technology in their kids' lives?
1: It's, it's, it's an everyday battle because we're addicted. I'm addicted to my phone, albeit I do work all the time. right? I'm working. But it's a, it's a problem. It's an addiction. And it has its beauty. And part of the reason why a message like What CIS espouses or what I espouse can spread internationally is because of it. And then it has its addictive, checking out, devolution aspect. It's devolving us on so many levels. It's creating a paralysis of, of the ability to connect, which was already in deficit. So how do you as a parent find your way with technology? First, you have to be comfortable with how you use it. And then you have to create boundaries around it, and people talk about technology as if it's its own, it's an independent monster that lives in your house, like technology, and everyone nods their head like it's a thing, it's become a personification. Technology is, is just another way to either connect or disconnect. It's just one more manifestation of connection or disconnection. So your ability to negotiate it is the same as your ability to have a boundary with a friend or have a, a toxic friend or a friend who may be taking you down uh, the wrong path. Or It's the same way as you get up and say no more at the dining table. Your ability to hold a boundary. Simple, technology is not the problem. The problem is your ability to negotiate connection or disconnection. A boundary in sand or a boundary in stone. That's what it is, it's not technology. There's no problem with technology. The problem is from here and your ability to handle you and your child and your relationship.
2: So can you say something about the parents who end up in these intense power struggles over these things? They would
1: do it anyway. The power struggle would be about something else. It's about the relationship. The misguided seduction is that it's about technology. So we can blame Apple or Steve Jobs. he He didn't give his kids. It has nothing to do with him. He's not the one in the middle of your relationship. It's you. So this becomes a linchpin for the disconnection, which was inherent. So it's a wake-up call to say, wow, I'm really disconnected from my kid. How do I forge connection? The battle is not over technology. The battle is over how can I forge connection in this moment, and I don't know how to. That's what it is. And we're just helpless because technology is more seductive than we are. It is more colorful than we are. So that means we have to become more creative. We have to bring our kid outside out of their room. My goodness, then we have to play games with them. We have to be present and make it fun. That takes initiative and energy on our part. That's why we're having an issue with technology because we know technology is doing a better job at giving something to our children that we don't know how to give.
2: Makes sense. <laughs> so, from your viewpoint, why do you suppose the traditional disciplines, like some of us were maybe from the generation where spanking happened or there were timeouts or kids were sent to the room, why do you suppose those ways often fail, but parents keep doing it? The whole counting, one, two, three, I mean, that whole thing. What is that called? One, two, three magic or something? And you could just see that kid and that Mama's on two. And you just watch this thing going on thinking, which way which ways is this going to no, go? No, Mama's uh, on
1: 22. <laughs> and the kid is like, okay. We're, we're still doing whatever the kid wants to do. The, the, it's so amazing how we use these techniques. They're even called techniques. They're called disciplinary strategies. And books have been sold. And you've bought them. And have they ever, ever brought you closer to your kid, had your kid become more empowered on their own free will, and made you feel as if you were being conscious in the moment. No, you use it because first mainstream endorses it. If you really stop to think about it, who do you dare to discipline besides your children? Not even yourself, right? Certainly not your partner. Do you discipline your friends if they come late for lunch? You wouldn't dare. So the very fact that there is a whole industry under this rubric of disciplining your children, is it not such a egoic, delusional, maniacal, tyrannical trip? I mean, it's a trip, and we're buying books on it. shes But with love, she said to me, maybe you shouldn't call your book Why Discipline Doesn't Work. You should say why... How to consciously discipline your child. Even she was like, No, mainstream is not going to buy this book. I'm helping you here. Don't say discipline doesn't work. But I'm here to tell you the whole notion of the word discipline toward, over, against, for another being is a delusion. And it should never be encouraged. The reason we do it for our children is because it has a religious underpinning, of course, but also because we truly believe we need to control our children and we can. So that's the ultimate delusion that our children are here so we can control them, impose on them without paying attention to who it is they are. So it will not work because you and I know if any of you were disciplined traditionally that all you thought of when you were locked up in the closet was not, oh, I'm so sorry, and how do I make amends and grow into a wiser kind of person? All you thought of was, when I become older, and I will take some sort of revenge, or when I grow older, I will leave this house, or, so, right? That's what we're doing locked up in that closet. Who likes to be spanked with a belt? I mean, really? And I get, I get pushback even today if I suggest, don't hit your child, right? So... It is an insane, archaic, primitive, caveman way, woman, way of thinking that needs to really be burned. Never buy a book that teaches you how to discipline, because if they're not teaching you to discipline yourself, don't buy it. it. We're out of self-discipline when we discipline our children. We discipline our children because we have no control. I've seen myself, no control. The only control is I want to do something to you because you're making me feel so inept right now. You're, you're calling to task how disgraceful I am as a parent, pathetic. And you're reminding me as how I, as a child, had no control. You're taking me back to that utter helplessness that I had, and I'm going to make you pay for it. Because you, I've been told, are the last person who should make me feel like that. So I've been told I can do something to you. So I will take away every possession I gave you, and I can even hurt you because you're mine. So it is really that we can't control our helplessness because our children will make us helpless. They do. I mean, they pull your pants down, metaphorically speaking. (laughs) You're standing there going, I don't know what to do right now. (laughs) They have that power. So it is instinctual. It is our primal old brain response to want to protect ourselves. And that three-year-old is threatening you, right? And you're like, this child is evil. I have to do so. I have to exercise. Exorcise this demon. And we believe we're doing something benevolent in that moment. This is the trip, you know, the crazy hallucinations that we, we get because the psychological helplessness from our past resurfaces in the moment. That's what's happening.
2: And then you throw a little bit of adrenaline in and some cortisol and some of those stress hormones. Yeah. And you watch this whole, like, anxiety attack happening.
1: Yeah, And where we fully believe that the child is the bad one. But understand, this was done to us. So we are just going to repeat it to the other. We were done too, we will do too.
2: So was there something healing that happened for you when you had Maya, in terms of some of your family of origin, wounds?
1: I didn't have any, no, I'm kidding. (laughs)
2: Let's get her dad on the phone. (laughs) What time is it, Mumbai? Oh, it's uh, 7.30 in the morning.
1: So did he, yeah, sure. You know, first is the shock of seeing the shadow because you may think you're healed till you have a child, right? Like you do your master's level in psychology or take a few courses or meditate five minutes. You think like you got it under, you paid your rent on time. You got, you got this. You think you're an adult, right? And then you have a child. What you don't realize is that only a child can take you back to your childhood, right? So there's something so unique about this opportunity, but first it kills you. And then it resurrects you if you're willing to look in the mirror and say, what does this say about me? And then you realize that everything is saying something about you. And then you're willing to go do some work on that and deconstruct and dare to heal. And then there's no healing like the one that's afforded in this relationship.
2: Because It seems to me that we oftentimes pick partners that may represent something that's unfinished in us. And I wonder when two people come together and have a child.
1: Mayhem. <laughs> <laughs> unconscious karmic mayhem
2: and how did you find your way th- how do you find your way through that and how do you help other people
1: it's you know i i, I there's, no, that be fun, the next there's book? no there's no end to it first and i will i've already put aside money for her therapy it's it's in a nice fat 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 amount has been set aside so i won't be surprised when she calls me and goes mom the therapist has called you in for a session i'm just waiting for that day um, so the work never ends and there is no destination But I think understanding that this is the process, not being surprised by it, not saying I'm a bad mother or a bad parent because I found myself in the cauldron of my unconsciousness. Go, of course, of course I have, because I have to go through this trial by fire in order to evolve. There is no evolution without a complete stripping away of everything you knew to be familiar. So how are we going to evolve? Right, we all want the evolution, but we don't want the, the trial by fire. So the trial by fire comes through jobs and friends and then you come closer you know, to your mom and your dad and you come closer to your intimate partner and then you come to your children. This is how we will evolve. Only through those who mirror us every day. Not the ones who mirror us once a month, they love us. The ones who mirror us every day, that's where the issues come up because you're being called to see yourself in your raw, natural state. So this is, this is the way to evolve. If I did not fall flat on my face every day, I would not evolve. So I understand that this humbling process is not something to be ashamed by, surprised by, or resist against. It is the way to evolve.
2: It seems so. it's really great with everybody here that you're helping there to be a setting and a place for parents to find each other and really see that and support each other. Yes. And um, I just wonder, you, you laugh a lot. Is there anything funny about parenting? <laughs> I, mean, you really I think do. we're you
1: hilarious. <laughs> I think we are wickedly hilarious. Aren't we? Like if you, dare, if you just look at your ego, it's just the most comedic thing in the world. Everything out of your mouth is about really your agenda. Everything. You have done nothing selfless. And if you can just see it and how you talk the good talk and... You know, pretend like you're giving your child something that's uniquely for them. Everything is for you. Then you begin to laugh at yourself and find yourself caged in this battle, but also be compassionate with yourself. Understand that it's the human condition. It's the parental human condition, double whammy, you know.
2: It must be a bit of a relief to have your daughter kind of be on the cusp of teenage yes. years, yes. Yes. I mean, all the things that can yes. happen and all the worries and fear that go with all those things of keeping your kids safe and yes. making sure they don't, all these bad things don't yeah. happen now to the them. O-
1: the only, only fears are like, you know, drugs, alcohol, and sex, but that's all. <laughs> uh, at least it's not about, you know, keeping your teeth clean and eating your carrots and beans. Now it's just like simple fears. You know, what, I, what I'm saying by this is like the fears we thought were important, watch when your kid becomes a teenager, right? We're worried about pooping and carrots and five things are left on the plate. And then when you have a teenager, it's a, the game just gets bigger and bigger because it's the game of real life coming now. And so how you handle it and how you're willing to let go, you, you have actually no choice. You will be let go off. You know, my daughter has unceremoniously, you know, fired me. I have no choice. I'm calling it, oh, I've let go and I've surrendered. I had no choice. You're just shoved to the, to the wings. If you're even allowed to be on the same platform, the same level, you know. So this is the beauty of children. They will, at some point, say, I'm done with your ego. I'm done with your immaturity. I'm done with your unconsciousness. If you don't release me and look at yourself, I am on my way. And that's what happens. Now, you, if you're being taken for the ride, you know, a few tidbits they allow you, you're you're a lucky, blessed parent, you know. Then you've done something right in the conscious connection department. You know, my daughter tells me anything. I'm like, oh, thank you, thank you for telling me. You know, i like, oh, thank God, thank God. Again, only because I want to be sure I've you know, done something right. And my husband's like, don't you think you should be disciplining her in this moment? I'm like, are you kidding? She's talking to me. I'm like, so happy. I'm like, she said hello, and then she gave me some personal information. Even though it's like information that you don't want to get as a parent, I'm like, it's okay, it's okay. As long as she's connecting to me, I need to be connected with. So it's all we're so desperate. But there is so this is the humor. Isn't it funny?
2: <laughs> I suppose that's the best that can be done is for a for that's the a best we can do for a yes. parent to feel like the kid wants to talk to the parent. Just
1: talks to just them. Just talk.
2: And yeah. maybe down the line, if something comes up, be able to use the parent as a consultant in some ways. Yes. Just to keep the dialogue open yes. and not have it shut down, like in so many families.
1: But it's, it's hard not to open your mouth and give an opinion. Because they, when they talk, then you again go back in the delusion. Like so cu- quickly, you, first you're dying for them to talk. But the minute they start talking, like first sentence you're conscious and you're like listening. But within two seconds, the ego comes and takes you, like, oh, maybe she's talking or he's talking because they want my opinion, or they want my expertise, or they want me to intervene, or they want me to rescue. And then again, we go back into our roles, and within two minutes, the child looks at you and goes, see, I knew I shouldn't have, I knew, I knew. I can't tell you the countless times my daughter goes, mom, okay, we are done for the evening. The other, other day, she said to me, not only are you, you know, what did she say? Not only is your opinion irrelevant, And my ego got all tickled. I go, oh, she used the word irreverent. She knows such a big word. I'm like on my own trip. And she's like, irrelevant, irrelevant. I'm like, but that's a big word too. I'm like, oh, that's... I'm like, how many syllables? (laughs) She's my daughter. And then she's like, listen to me. You are irrelevant. And so then there was a choice point. I'm like, is this an insult? Or should I be like really excited that she's on her way? Which one is it? And my husband's like, my husband's so mainstream, he's like, that That was rude. That was rude. He's like, that was rude. So I was like, oh, but maybe, maybe, you know, because the ego is so big, I'm like, no, maybe that was like conscious childing. Like that was a conscious child moment. That, that was her breaking free. So it's just like, <laughs> you can't stop the ego. It's insatiable. I
2: suppose the laughing really helps. <laughs> and crying. But
1: I think, <laughs> but I think you're right. To just understand that your sacred role is to be the presence, you know, and to show up in your authentic self, admit your fallibilities, show the ego, Here, here's the ego card, like just see my ego, my desperation, my need, can you just like not make me so embarrassed like when you grow up, a little embarrassed I can take, not so, just please, like, um, and then you're just clean as a parent, instead of pretending you're on some pedestal of grandeur because you you're, you will be called out so quickly 12 years and you're gonna be begin being called out and you may not be ready for that and then the shock of being called out by your kid catapults you into a depression you know that's why parents have a hard time in teenagehood because they can't get over that they are no more relevant. Right? So start working on it at an early age. You we should not be relevant. Because we are not here to have an imposition of ourselves. We are here to to be on the sideline and let the spirit forge forward. That is the goal.
2: It must be a bit of a relief to help parents really just take that, that that armor off, the pressure of all of that expertise, and yeah. the way which they miss so many moments, like you did, just yeah. not when you, you had that wonderful thing about the big words. Yeah, I and mean, that's lovely. Yeah. I think that w- w- what it seems to me that you're able to do, and, and I think it's so beautiful, to help parents help their kids become experts on themselves. You know, One of the things that I do in my practice, I always say, you know, you're the expert on you, and what I'm doing over here is trying to put myself out of a job, basically. You are. When you trust yourself enough to say yes. you're the expert on you. It's not yes. me, it's not your dad, it's nobody else. Yes. It seems like you listen to your, your daughter and get a sense of what it is right. that she really I, I,
1: wants. I re- revel in her defiance. I do. I know. It took me years to get to that place. But it's a ce- celebratory... Maya, don't listen anymore. I think you need to close your eyes. I'm She's got celebrated. her headphones on anyway. <laughs> She's like, I was listening to you anyway. Again, your ego. Uh, you think I'm listening to you? I missed everything. You, you, you talked about me? Um, I celebrate when she can stand firm and say No. Wow, that t- I, can't, I can't even do it today. So the ability to not seek approval, to not please, to not bend under the authority of another, to, to forge your way, to speak your truth, even if it's unpopular, we are plagued by this in our 50s. So for a child to be able to do that, how can we not celebrate that? The only reason we can't celebrate that because it threatens us and our ego because we haven't emerged into true self, so our false self is constantly being triggered. But when we are implanted in true self, you release your child. I mean, and and she releases you, and they release you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you to Richard and CIIS, and to all of you for coming and being patient to listen and to receive and to give.
0: Thank you so much. Thank 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 you, Richard.
2: Thank you so much.
0: been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu podcast.